0: Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well,
1: Robert. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, Today, our guest on the show is Sarah Cole McIntosh. She is a member of the JCPS School Board, Uh, and we talked to her, first of all, a little bit about herself, how she ended up on the school board, why she wanted to do it, Um, and then we talked to her a little bit about kind of a lot of the issues facing JCPS in Frankfurt right now, kind of the relationship between state government and JCPS, which is, you know i will say has been better in the past uh is not great right now we talked a little bit about that um and, and also some of the things that she sees as challenges and successes there in in the jcps school system it was a good conversation always like to talk about jcps and it was good to hear from a school board member today um i also mentioned she was my eighth grade social studies teacher and uh is my my parents neighbor so you know <laughs> some weird connections there but uh yeah jasmine how'd you think the conversation went
1: yeah i thought it was really good and is that is that the first JCPS school board person we've had
0: on? It's the first active JCPS school. Per- I guess you know we had Lisa Wilner on when she was running for uh, state house and technically was still serving on the JCPS school board. Um, but yeah, I think I think that that's right. The first JCPS school board member we've had talking specifically about the JCPS school board. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it was it was cool to hear from someone doing that job and and cool to hear her perspective on. Um, some of the issues, that, also like the strengths of JCPS.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We have a lot of stuff to get to before we talk to her, though. Uh, I'm going to give us an update on the DEI bill. That's, that's SB6. We talked about that. Uh, quite a bit before. Uh, we, some, some updates, a lot of people weighing in on this bill, um, so I wanted to talk about that. Uh, Jasmine's going to talk to us about a, a new open records bill that was filed and then withdrawn, so just kind of the situation there. Um, this is kind of a weird period in the legislative session when there's clearly some stuff cooking, uh, but we don't know about it yet, uh, so we will probably find out about that stuff soon enough. Um, but th- this is kind of the calm before the storm uh, so there, there has been some stuff happening. We're talking about it, but I expect a pretty significant deluge to happen here in the next month or so. Um, so be sure you're listening. The last thing we're going to talk about, there is another potential strike of UAW workers in, in, uh, at Ford and the, at the Kentucky truck, truck plant. So we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, and, and you know what's going on there, what we need to know about that. So without any further ado, let's talk about this DEI bill. Okay, so so last week we discussed news that Jennifer Decker, who is one of the chief sponsors of this bill, who serves uh, Shelby County, um, she told a crowd of people that her father was a slave. And of course, Rep- Representative Decker is white and uh, is the chief. It, and it, yeah, she is the <laughs> chief sponsor of of this. Jasmine, you, you missed this. Uh, did you? Yeah, see-
1: I missed the show, and I saw that she said this everywhere. Like this was one of those things. I think the first time we made national news during the session was when Nick Wilson filed the incest bill. And then this was the second time. Yeah. yeah. And I I saw all the headlines, but never read any of this like
0: responses or anything. Why did she say this? Um, you know, I don't I, I that's a question that that's tough to answer, Jasmine. Why why what do you think she said it? I don't know. Uh why do you I it's 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 difficult to say why she would say something like this. Um I I think that she's trying to be like uh, and I, she said it in front of like the NAACP, I think, which uh makes it maybe worse. I guess I don't know and it's uh uh, yeah, you know, I, 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 maybe it's like, you know, I, I understand your pain or something. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, one of the things that we, I talked about this with, with Allison Wiseman last week, but I feel like it's a... It's a good evidence that DEI is a good idea for some people. Maybe having some (laughs) um, more information about why that's not an appropriate thing to say would have been would have been nice for Representative Decker. Yeah. So I think that since this has happened and like you said, made so much news, I, I think it has given... The space for several, several, like typically apolitical groups to kind of come out against the legislation to kind of put down. You know, we don't usually talk about this stuff, but we're going to put a flag in the ground to say we don't, we don't support this. Um, and uh, you know, I think that. The fact that it's getting so much negative press coverage is one of the reasons why. And, and the first person who uh, who spoke out that I was surprised—I will say—I was surprised to see speak out so strongly was Eli Capoludo, who is the president of the University of Kentucky. Um, I wrote in my notes he's aggressively non-political. Um, you know uh, that well. Okay, I'll mention that in a second. But he spoke out against the anti-DEI bills as well as a different bill which would impact tenure. Um, talking about how uh, th- those bills are bad. Capilouto has been the president of, of UK since 2010. And, and I think the thing about him, he, he plays his cards pretty close to the vest when it comes mm-hmm. to the legislature and when it comes to the government. I think he does a lot of like sort of talking directly to legislators, trying to turn influence legislation that way. Um, I, I think he understands really well that the state is very conservative and that Republicans don't naturally want to support higher education funding. That is, you know, not something that they are interested in spending the state's money on. Um, and I really think he goes out of his way to avoid tipping off, ticking off Republicans and the Republicans in the legislature, which I i mean, I do think is generally, uh, it's a definitely a defensible strategy. I, I think it's something that you can definitely think uh, it, it pays dividends a, a lot of the time for him. Um, but, you know, I do think that there is an under undercurrent that wishes he would speak out more strongly on some of these things and that is what he did about this specific bill saying uh quote we don't speak as an institution on public policy unless the issues will impact our entire community in potentially significant ways this is one of those moments unquote so being like you know this is a big deal we're talking about it so Eli Capilouto coming out very strongly opposed to this which which was surprising to me A little bit less surprisingly, here in Louisville, Marty Polio, who's the superintendent of JCPS, said, quote, I want to be clear what is threatened from much of this legislation, all of our equity work, all of our funding around our high poverty schools where we have the majority of our black students in our high-poverty schools, such uh, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Grace Jones Academy, Tap School for Girls, Newcomer Academy, all are threatened by this legislation, unquote. So, you know, also coming out very strongly against this, laying out exactly who it would impact, how it would impact them. Um, but again, I'm not as surprised by this because, you know, Dr. Polio tends to be a little bit more willing to speak out about political issues, um, but, but these statements, which came during an event hosted by the Urban League, I did think were especially strong, were especially forward, were especially forceful. So, you know, we're not surprised to see Dr. Polio coming out uh, on, on, on issues that are before the state legislature, but this was coming out very strongly. Kim Schatzel, who is the president of the University of Louisville, she also released a statement. She was like the last person to release a statement on this list. Um, and it says, quote, I strongly believe that you cannot deliver a higher quality educa- university education without a diverse classroom and campus, including inclusive of all our demographics, identities, and ideologies. Only in such circumstances and with such experiences will our students be prepared to foster their own and others' excellence in a diverse global economy, in short, a diverse and inclusive campus better prepares our students to lead, unquote. So if you listen to that closely, closely, she fell short of actually calling out the bills, Um, which is something that Dr. Capilouto and Dr. Polio did. Um, But Dr. Schatzel, you know, basically talked around it quite a bit, said, we need DEI, I support DEI, Uh, but she didn't say SB6 is bad. Um, She didn't come out directly and say, this specific bill is bad for us, and I hope it doesn't pass. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, there's still room for her to move forward, to speak a little bit more forcefully. We'll see if she ends up doing that. Meanwhile, SB6 does uh, continue a It is moving forward in the legislature. Um, It passed the Senate by a a wide margin last week and has made it to the House. When I checked on it, I guess yesterday, it had not quite made it, uh, you know, it hadn't been assigned to a committee quite yet. I don't know Jasmine, what do you think? Do you think that this controversy is going to derail this at all? Do you think it matters that these people are speaking out or is it just going to are is this just going to be like water under the bridge uh and it does you know the bill is just going to pass without without really taking into account in the the fact that any of these university people are opposed to it.
1: Um I don't think that loud opposition um Deters our legislature too much, um, so I I don't think that it's going to derail the bill. And I th- I think if it was going to it it would have happened. Like I actually think our our Senate might be more responsive than the House. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's something that we've kind of been tracking this year. The Senate is, you know, potentially the place that's a little bit more willing to, to negotiate on some of these topics. Yeah, so that's a good point.
1: Yeah, so I don't know. I I don't think that listening to Dr. Polio and higher ed presidents, I, you know, maybe they have decent relationships. I don't know. But I don't think they're going to be able to move the needle on this. Maybe there will be some changes. I don't know. But I think if they want to pass this, they're still going to do it.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I agree with that wholeheartedly. I just don't think that the Republicans in the legislature are responsive to anything um, in terms of them changing their mind on anything. You know, they may be responsive to their core constituents um, and telling them, like, what legislation they would like to see passed But nobody who falls on to the other side of legislation is anybody that's going to get any kind of audience. I would hope that maybe the fact that you know Dr. Capiluto spoke out about this, I you know would would impact somebody. Um, Maybe and like you said, maybe enough to like make some changes, some tinkering around the edges to make this bill maybe slightly better. Um, but, but I think that that really is probably the best that we can hope for. Um, this bill has clearly been a high priority for the legislature and it seems highly likely that it will pass and it probably will pass in, um, it's, it's current form. But, um, you know, who knows, uh, crazy things happen and it, it may be that, that, that this bill, uh, has some serious changes to it because of, because of this lobbying and I, I certainly hope it does at least anyway. All right, uh, that's the update on SB 6. As it moves through the legislature, we'll be sure to update everybody about it. Jasmine, talk to us about this open records bill.
1: Okay, so Representative John Hodgson of Fisherville has filed House Bill 509, a bill that would change Kentucky open records law. So the bill would greatly narrow the definition of what's accessible under the open records law. And it would basically... Limit what's accessible to only final actions. Um, So right now, a public record is any documentation prepared, owned, used, and in the possession of or retained by a public agency. And the definition in the bill would make a public record a record that gives notice to an outside person of a transaction or final action. So that new definition makes it very specific of what you might be able to obtain through an open records request. Um, and there are a lot of things that would no longer fall under that. And then the bill would also explicitly exclude correspondence in which opinions are expressed or policies formulated or recommended from being accessible from open records. Um, Michael Abbott and Amy Bensonhaver, who are both attorneys with expertise in open records law, mentioned just a few things that would likely be excluded under the bill. Um, Department budgets, records related to wrongdoing of public employees, consultant reports, cabinet for health and family services records related to child fatalities, petitions and support of executive pardons and emails exchanged between employees or representatives about public business. Republicans have been saying that all this bill is meant to do is extend the measures that they passed for the legislative branch to the executive branch, Um, but it seems like it would exclude a whole lot more than that um, well, by changing the definition.
0: And and I mean, the legislative branch's business is much more. I mean, it's it's smaller than the executive branch. The executive branch does so much, and right. the legislative branch does a lot too. But it's very focused on legislating, and the executive branch does the business of the state. So
1: yeah, I was just trying to think about like the things as an attorney that I've needed open records requests for and like police body cam is one of those. Uh, and I'm not sure you, I don't think you'd be able to get that. Um,
0: yeah. It doesn't seem like it's, you know,
1: under this definition.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So seen, that's, that seems, that seems correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of things that would be excluded. It The bill would also require agencies to provide state email addresses and conduct, um, in conducting business with an email account other than their state-provided email address would be grounds for removal. And Republican leadership has said that Bashir supports the bill, but he's he's only commented on supporting, like, the email part of it. He hasn't said anything about, like, the this open records part of it. Um, but, so I say all of this bad stuff. Um, but after receiving criticism about the bill, John Hodgson said he is working to revise it to ensure that what's available now is still available in the future. So that is good news that he is listening to some of the feedback and it looks like we may be getting a new version of this, um, that is, is not going to be as restrictive.
0: Yeah, I feel like every year there's a bill that tries to gut the open records law. <laughs> and, and for whatever reason, it never... It, like, it either gets watered down or it doesn't pass. And, and I just am like... I'm, I am just don't understand how it manages to happen on the open record side, but, like, not... <laughs> like, anything else. Like, we just talked about how... We don't expect like lo- lobbying to really impact SB six, but um, you know, it seems like it did work in this case, um, and that that's, yeah. that's, that's really good news. Uh, you know, I do think that the media and the media's uh, advocates, um, you know, freedom of the press people really brought to bear like their full influence as they do every year whenever the, <laughs> the bad open records bill comes forward. Um, you know, and and John Hanchen, this is the first time he's carried the bill, right? Because he's this is his first or second legislative session um so you know i i don't know why this keep app keeps happening why it keeps getting stopped but i guess that's a uh, that's good news um we need access to the things we have access to um that they are really important that we have this stuff and and um yeah i hope i hope we don't make too many changes uh and it, it seems like we've been able to to prevent it so far so we'll see what
1: yeah, happens. yeah and and i don't know i don't know why you'd You'd want to restrict the open records law like this, even if you're a Republican, because if you have if you have a Democrat like in the executive branch. Don't don't you want to be able to see what they're up to? (laughs) Like, might you need the open records act? well I mean that's that's the case
0: right now which is kind of right yeah I don't I don't know I don't know and I don't really understand why they're doing it that way but yeah yeah that is the case
1: yeah so that's what's going on there it looks like we'll have a, a different version of this that maybe we'll be talking about later
0: yep absolutely um all right well that's it about open records tell us what we need to know about this potential strike at UAW
1: yeah I mean, this is kind of a short story, because um, we're it hasn't happened quite yet, but nearly nine thousand uAW auto workers at Ford's Kentucky truck plant um, plan to strike on friday february twenty third if local contract issues are not resolved. so, This comes after, you know, the national big three strike, which was Ford, GM and Stellantis um, back in the fall of 2023. And so this potential strike is not national. This is about local contract issues, which are things that are plant specific. And um, the press release the press release cites health and safety in the plant and ergonomic issues, and Ford's continued attempts to erode the skilled trades as sticking points in the negotiations. The Kentucky truck plant was the first truck plant to strike during the UAW strike in the fall, and this past week, uh, Ford's CEO said that it will rethink where it builds future vehicles Um and and so it seems that the strike in the fall has kind of changed UAW's relationship with the corporation, um, and you know we've we've kind of seen a big comeback um, for labor unions the last couple of years, um, but we're also seeing the blowback from that. I think um, you know we've got this statement from Ford saying. It's going to rethink where it builds future vehicles. And then we also have things like this lawsuit um, with Elon Musk and Trader Joe's. And now Amazon and Starbucks have joined it, um, you know, to sue the NLRB. And so um, we're we're seeing a lot of anti-labor sentiment um, along with that. So... um, You know, today is February 20th, and it looks like a strike may happen on the 23rd if those contract issues aren't resolved.
0: Yeah, I certainly hope that they are resolved. I do think that you know, it it is it is the tool that you have as a local truck plant or as a local plant to to do with, um, do with do some of this stuff uh, that. You know, what was promised, especially around like the health and safety issues. So hopefully um, we can avoid a strike by getting that stuff fixed pretty quickly since it is like on the list of things to do. Um, That last part about, you know, Ford CEO and and kind of the more antagonistic posture that Ford is going to be taking towards its union probably is pretty scary, I think. Um, you know, I, I do think that the, the relationship that Ford struck up with the UAW UAW under previous leadership, you know, left a lot to be desired in terms of making a lot of progress, but it wasn't without its benefits. You know, mm-hmm. I do think it like by having a little bit more of a chummy relationship, you were able to, you know, retain a lot more of the the jobs in the United States that Stellantis and GM Um, moved out to Mexico, etc. And if Ford takes a more antagonistic relationship with UAW, um, you know, there's it's it's kind of tough to imagine they wouldn't eventually do the same thing. So I don't really know. I mean, I'm not a union president. I don't know what what abilities they have to stop any of that sort of stuff. But uh, I certainly hope um, that the Ford truck plant in Kentucky uh, has a long prosperous future ahead of it. Um, I think that would be the best thing for everybody so um hope they get what they need i hope they're able to keep their jobs all of that stuff so all right thanks jasmine anything else about this strike that you want to say
1: no that's it right now
0: yeah all right well that's it for this part let's get to our interview with sarah cole mcintosh
1: sarah cole mcintosh is a member of the jefferson county public schools school board She's a product of JCPS schools, having graduated from DOS High School and was also a teacher in JCPS for 16 years, most of that at Mail High School. She joins us today to talk about JCPS and the state legislature. So, Sarah Cole McIntosh, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast.
2: Thank you, Jasmine and Robert. I'm happy to be with you this
0: evening. Thank you. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. Uh, in addition to all of that, I would say that uh, Miss Cole was my eighth grade social studies teacher, and also uh, oh. is my is my mom's neighbor. So lots of lots of uh, Sarah Cole McIntosh <laughs> connections there. Um, that was a long long time ago <laughs> for sure
2: more years than i care to admit probably
0: you you must have been like super young when you taught at Mzik. I you know because that's been... yeah i would not
1: have thought you were robert's middle school teacher i started
2: teaching when i was 21 my
0: first year. I was 21 years old. Yeah, and as you can imagine, like the entire, all the eighth grade boys had big crushes on Miss Cole. That was uh, how, how it went there <laughs> at Music Middle School that year, uh, for sure. Okay, uh, before we get started talking about JCPS in this year's legislative session, I guess, you know, we'd like to just get to know you a little bit first. Tell us why, you know, you made the decision to run for school board and how it's been. I mean, this has been a pretty crazy term for sure. So the past three years when you've been serving um, on the school board, how, how it's gone for you?
2: Yeah, you know, a friend actually was um, the instigator in suggesting that I run. And the more friends and and former colleagues I talked to, the more I was encouraged, just because I had so much experience um, and a lot of different perspectives that I could bring to the role. did not anticipate, honestly, a full line campaign. Um, When I filed, it it was uh, believed that I was filing unopposed. Um, and then there was a last-minute submission. So um, really just wanted to help. As, as cliche and cheesy as that sounds, coming in um, with so many years of ex- lots of different experiences as well um, in education, thought I would be able to, to do something to pay it forward for my district, the district where my kids attend school. Um, and, and it's my hometown. So, so there is that. Piece of call to service and civic action and civic responsibility, right? We, we try to teach kids that to be a citizen, you have rights and responsibilities and that public service is one of those responsibilities. And so um, with that, I don't think anything could have actually prepared me though for what the last few years have been. Um, it has been a sharp learning curve, no doubt. Um, sometimes it has felt like from 2021, I took the seat in January of 21, um, up to this point has been responding to crises and um, just a lot of challenges that I don't think we could have anticipated that all of those things would coalesce simultaneously or, or in such close succession to one another. So it has been a challenge for sure.
0: Absolutely. I mean, uh, I can't imagine a, a more difficult term to start on for sure with you know everything having to do with COVID and, and everything else. So that that just by itself probably is enough to make it the craziest term that you can imagine. But um, one of the things that you you kind of hinted at this already, but one of the things that I think makes you a very unique uh, person to speak about JCPS is you've been a part of JCPS for such a very long time. You've been a teacher, um, you've been a, a, a student, uh, graduated from DOS High School, you, you have uh, children in the the system now, and you're on the school boards, you kind of have a nice perspective about, you know, the story of JCPS going back quite a ways. You know, people like me and a lot of other contemporaries, you know, we're in school for as long as we are, and then we stop and maybe we pick up learning more about the school districts once, once our kids are old enough to, to get into the, the school system. But but there's just so much that changes over over the breadth of time. So, so can you kind of talk to us a, a little bit about how the school district is and how it might be different from people who might have understand it from a, a different time in the past? I think part of what has
2: changed based to some of our successes that we are offering opportunities to students in a much um, greater capacity, whether it's advanced placement classes, dual credit, Academies of Louisville programs. Um, One of the things that I hear a lot is we need vocational schools and we need vocational programs. And really just the language around that has changed. The, The Academies of Louisville represents what we now refer to as career and technical education but that's still the same concept as vocational schools. So we're doing that all across the district and not just in high schools Our our middle schools have the explore program. And so students are getting exposed to career opportunities, coursework opportunities um, that in prior decades, they just didn't know about and didn't have access to. So I think that that's a big change. I think one of the other changes though too is our are our challenges. We are more than 60% free and reduced lunch. A number of our students, I think we're over 50% come to school um, in kindergarten, not prepared according to the assessments that they take. We have going on 18,000 students for whom English is not their first language. And so as we try to educate every student, when we have a lot of high need students and these needs are so different from one another, um, that just becomes incredibly difficult to do at the individual school level. But then again, that's a strength because our size allows us to scale a lot of those programs and and bring things to students. So I think what our schools look like in terms of who's in our schools has has definitely changed even since I was in high school um, many years ago. Uh, but I think, too, one of the things that has changed is it feels very much um, like the community does not rally around their schools, um, even the schools that their kids attend. And, and so there's a lot of negativity um, there's a lot of it's easy to buy into or believe the bad things that you hear. And some of them are true. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything um but it it becomes easier to overlook the the things that we should be celebrating
0: no doubt about it um you know there there are there is a lot of good with with you know the struggles that we have and 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 it does feel sometimes like instead of coming together to overcome our challenges we'd rather just like complain about them which which gets to be very frustrating i'm sure from from your perspective but from you know those of us who are supporters perspective as well um Well, one, I mean, as we talk about start to transition to talking a little bit about the legislature in in the state, I mean, one of the things I think is a big struggle is just operating a large urban school district is is just is just so much different than operating a different school district that that looks a lot different. So, I mean, talk to us from your perspective about some of the major differences between administering, you know, a a school system like JCPS versus something that's a little bit smaller. I think it's I
2: mean, We have 96,000 kids, and so we are larger in our student population than most of the counties in Kentucky are in their total population. So when you're looking at buses, I know we'll probably get there, but um, we are transporting almost the population of Bowling Green every day to and from school, if you want to talk about numbers. So when you're looking at just the scale of, what we are able to accomplish, but also our challenges. The scale is just completely different. And when you have a very small community where maybe you only have one high school, there is tremendous value in the whole community, knowing one another, the kids coming through school together from kindergarten up through graduation, the families know one another. And so we do have a challenge in building community for sure. And that's something that I think a lot of the small communities or smaller districts are able to do.
1: Yeah, I think you're right about that. And, you know, one thing that we wanted to talk to you about. So we talk about a lot of local issues on our show. We're both in Louisville, um, but we also talk about the state government. And for the past several years, the state government has taken an adversarial position with JCPS where many actions the state has taken have been opposed by the district or done without any kind of partnership um, Mm -hmm. from the district. How have these often hostile actions from the state government impacted JCPS's ability to serve its students?
2: I think it can be a distraction. It pulls some of our staff away, especially central office staff, Dr. Polio. It pulls them away from being able to focus on issues at hand because it gives them something else external that they now have to deal with. And so it can be a strain on our resources. Um, If they send in a group, for example, to interview um, staff from a school or from central office, whatever time they're spent gathering that data in preparation is time they're not spent doing their regular daily job. So it does become a burden for operations. I think the biggest impact it has in terms of being negative is that it overwhelms in in many ways destroys morale because every time mm-hmm. a legislator says, JCPS, followed by some pejorative, they're lumping the entire district together and they're, they're disparaging our teachers and our paraeducators and our classified staff and all of those individuals that come together and make successful days of school every single day for the majority of our students, um, they're also tearing down their work. And so, when that happens, it becomes even more of a challenge for JCTs internally to keep our morale high among those doing the work, because they're just getting beat over the head all the time with the negative um, language and and admonishments. Really,
1: yeah, I I can definitely see that. Um, one specific thing we wanted to ask you about that that's happened recently members of the legislature announced that they wanted to attempt yet another audit of JCPS. Do you think Mm -hmm. that um, an audit is really necessary and and why do you think that the auditor's office is pursuing another one?
2: I don't know if it's necessary, but it's welcome. Um, The last audit that they completed in, in its entirety was in 2014 and that was under a different board, a different superintendent, and a different central office staff. So if anyone thinks that JCPS as it is operating now is the same as 10 years ago, um, they haven't looked very hard at all of the evidence. Because even prior to me coming onto the board, Dr. Polio and his team were working through those, I want to say it was like 130, it was, it was a tremendous number of points that that last audit from 2014 put forward and they have been working through all of those and they were part of the corrective action plan written by kentucky department of education and so i welcome the audit as long as it is not approached um, with the intent of proving a specific outcome right you want to, you want to good research and good data that you can use for continuous improvement um but if it's being done with the goal of dividing the district i think that the the data is probably going to come back skewed
1: mm-hmm. i would worry about that intent maybe <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: yeah that, that'd be an interesting kind of follow-up from that question is that i mean I, I understand your perspective for sure and and us as people that watch the legislature all the time we just have no expectations of anything being anything except for, you know, just to prove a political point. What are some ways that, you know, the the legislators in the auditor's office who are are pushing for this could show the the district that they are acting in good faith and are interested um, in in dealing with that and and, and can assure, you know, the board and um, the staff and everybody that this isn't just a, a political game.
2: I think the first step would be to involve some of our staff and some board members in the process in developing the, the questions that they're going to ask, the data that they're going to look for. Um, I think also what is going to come of the recommendations, where that's going to go, who's going to get that, um, I think is also really important because everything that I've heard in the public discourse around this or that's been printed in other media, um, I don't feel like the right questions have even been asked that would ascertain whether or not the district even could be divided. There have been so many legal questions about property. Um, I have not heard anyone talk about uh, seek formula. I've not heard anyone talk about um, funding sources in terms of our ability to levy, um, oh, not taxes, um, our bonds capacity, excuse me, um, because mm-hmm. if you break the district apart, new districts are not going to have the same kind of bonding capacity that JCPs currently has, um, because it's going to be like a brand new college graduate, right? Maybe they don't have bad credit, but they don't have any credit. And so how would any of these new districts um, manage their facilities needs? Because they're going to also inherit old buildings that need work or areas of town where new schools need to be built and there are so many things that have not even been mentioned um, that i i hope will be so that this could be a potential growth document for us um because we we are incredibly transparent all of the documents are either online or very easily accessible um and so i'm not sure what they think they're going to find um but i think build that kind of confidence in the result, then allowing some of our folks to take part in that that know our data, that know um, the ins and outs of all of our facilities and that kind of thing would be incredibly beneficial. I don't holding my breath, but I, I do think that that would go a long way.
0: I mean that's good to know. Uh I, I hope that, you know, if anybody's listening, you know, I hope they take that with a grain of salt and, and realize that there is the opportunity for collaboration. Of course that's always been there. Um, but you know mm-hmm. I, we would love to see it. We'll just put it that way. Um, you know, you mentioned this before and you said you didn't want to sugarcoat anything, and I mean it's it's definitely something that we see that JCPS has faced a lot of issues coming out of the pandemic, just like every school district across the whole country. One of the issues that's been kind of front and center in everybody's mind this year definitely has been the situation with buses. Um, you know, mm-hmm. so you're a school board member um, and, you know, you, you have a role in this. Uh, the, the staff, the uh, superintendent, et cetera, they have a different role. Everybody kind of has something to do to try to solve that problem. Can you talk to us a little bit about what the school board's role is in trying to solve this problem and what you think it will take to fully fix the district's busing issues?
2: So I think a lot of the public doesn't realize that the school board only manages one employee and that is the superintendent. Um, so when we get lots of emails saying fire everybody or do this, <laughs> and we, that is outside of our um, statutorily um, sworn by oath, um duties. We, we can't do that. Um, we can hold the superintendent to account and then it's, you know, trickles down, so to speak from there. Um, and I, I think that we have done that. We have asked for, um, a lot of data, a lot of information. Um, there are personnel meetings, um, that are held when we are in executive session because legally you're dealing with a personnel issue. Um, So I can't really speak too much about that, but that is also in the law. If anybody wants to look it up, um, as a board member, we can, you know, make recommendations to the, to the superintendent. We can say, Hey, this is kind of what we're looking for. We very rarely if ever get anything brought to us that Dr. Polio doesn't already think we're going to approve, right? That's just, that's bad business, right? Why are you going to bring to the school board something that you know, they're going to vote down. And so, those those plans are usually very well refined before they even come to us in a meeting. That said, there's no way, had we known what was going to happen this year, would we have approved the plans that were brought to us, right? No one said, well, we're going to put through this plan, but we're going to strand all these kids, and they're not going to get home until 10 o'clock at night, and the whole system is going to capitulate. We wouldn't have pr- approved those plans if that's what had been brought to us. I think that this is an issue that has certainly been um, percolating for a little while in, in terms of running short on drivers. Um, I've said it before, and it's not been always a popular um, notion, but we have to address discipline both in the schools and on the buses if we want to Um, make driving a bus in Jefferson County a desirable profession. Um, I don't know how many teachers I've heard say, you couldn't pay me enough to drive a bus. And these are the people who are also with the kids in their classroom all day. And so I think that that speaks volumes. And so I really think we need to take a good hard look and do some very candid exit interviews and things like that with our drivers and listen to them um that's not going to completely solve the problem i think that there are some other things that we can take a look at doing um david yates put forth a bill i'm bad at remembering the numbers on all of these things they all run together um where districts would be able to utilize passenger vans that that's a great idea it's not a fix it's a tool that we could use um for some of our rural routes people forget that jcbs does still have some rural routes um outside of the Snyder and in parts of our community where a whole bus isn't taken up for a smaller number of kids, we could utilize them for some of our ECE populations as well. There are ways that we could get creative, um, but keeping our system as is is just not an option. And I say that as a parent whose kid's bus gets to school late every day and um, is applying to high school next year. And we're not sure how we're going to get her there if there's not a bus. Um, but what we're doing isn't working, and so we can't continue to do it.
0: Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like there's going to be a silver bullet solution, but it sounds like that there's a lot of tools that we're looking to use and certainly hope that the solutions we have this year uh, perform better than the solutions we thought we had last year. I think everybody's on the same page there. Um you got into this a little bit when we asked a question earlier about, you know, a lot of the nice things that JCPS has going on. And, of course, like, there are, I mean, there are just amazing stories that are coming out of this district every day. So I would love to hear, you know, what are some stories or some of the favorite things that you have uh, uh, that JCPS is doing right now?
2: I think that our teachers are phenomenal. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that as as just You know, filler to answer the question. I think that the instruction that's happening in our classrooms, the resiliency of our teachers, the creativity of them to get through the last few years has been nothing short of miraculous. Um, And so, one thousand percent, the successes that we are having in JTPS are—we need to recognize that that is a result of our school-based staff, um, and that they're. Our principals, our teachers, our custodians, everyone who's in the schools on a regular basis, they're the real heroes. They're the ones doing the hard work. Um, I think seeing all of the different celebrations that we see at the beginning of all the different meetings, we always start with celebrations and staff and student recognitions. I think that's incredibly important um, to highlight those kids. But we get emails and emails and emails and so many other things. Um, that we're not able to put out there. And so it's just those individual successes. And I know that that's really hard to to point put down, that when we see kids winning national competitions or going to state for um, wrestling, you know, the girls wrestling team from uh, Fern Creek just won the first, I think it was the first state title for their team. Um, Those kind of things are so important, and they're getting overshadowed, which makes me sad. Um, But we have so many individual stories, but I would love to find a better way to highlight all of them.
1: Well, we appreciate you sharing some of those. Uh, Before we let you go, if people would like to um, help out on your next campaign or would like to help support JCPS in issues before the state legislature, how can they do those things?
2: I mean, there, of course, is always contacting your legislators, right, and letting them know that you support JCPS and the students and the staff. I think another way is to become really well-informed of the issues, ask questions. You know, if somebody wants to say, how does the budget work? How does that seek formula work? How did you all decide on this particular um, policy? Ask those questions, and we can give you answers so that when you go out in the community and you're talking to you know, other moms at the sporting event or or whatever it is that you're able to articulate those things because we want our community to support our school. And right now the narrative is very often going to drive them away. And Mm -hmm. so having a very, um, an informed constituency, right, is a way to help offset that. So ask lots of questions and um, let us help you, um, spread all
0: the good news. Absolutely. Well, you know, we really do appreciate you coming on, setting the record straight on, on a lot of JCPs issues, and uh, talking to us about, uh, you know, how to solve some of our futures, uh, or some solve some of our problems in, in the future. So, Sarah Cole McIntosh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you
1: so much. Anytime,
0: Jasmine. How can people get a hold of us?
1: They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KY Pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter you can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash my Old Kentucky Newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network.
0: All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.